Would you please pray with me? Lord, I'm grateful that we have your gospel recorded. I'm also grateful that you've made your kingdom available to us. Lord, come and show us what that means. I pray that you'd help me now as I preach. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Consider for a second those in authority over you in any, in any way, any sector. Choose, choose whatever you want. Government, education, business, um, even parenting. It could be your parents if you're a kid. Anyone that's got, church, it could be anyone that's got authority in your life. Think about that authority. And one of the things that happens when leadership fails in some way, we dream for a different situation. And we might even be tempted to think, we just need we even say the term, a benevolent dictator. We need somebody who is supreme power and authority, but is good. They're benevolent. But we also want them to have my best interest in mind, right? And the problem with that is, what if my best interest or what I want is not good? Or what if what is good for me is actually not good for you? So right away, we we start running into some problems. And so we think, well, I don't just need an all-powerful benevolent dictator and a good one. I need an omniscient one who can see the whole picture and then decide ultimately what's best for each one of us. That's the kind of leader that we're going to need. Now, the, the, uh, the dated movie Bruce Almighty did a really good job of showing how only God can do God's job because Bruce complains about God and he says, fine, you be God for a little while. And <clears throat> Bruce finds pretty quickly how difficult that task is. And he tries a couple of self-interested things at first, and they cause huge calamity for lots of other people. You know, he pulls the moon in to impress his girlfriend, and it causes a tsunami on the other side of the world. He gets tired of individual prayer requests, so he says yes to all, and like, like two million people win the lottery, and they all get 18 bucks. I mean, there's humor to this, right? But, but the truth of the matter is, you need to see the whole thing and know everything to know what is actually best for everyone. That's the kind of leader we need. And it's interesting, if it wasn't this context, you'll get the right answer in here. It's like in Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. But if, if we weren't in church right now, and I asked you the question, who is the smartest person to have ever lived? Most people, even in the church, Jesus wouldn't make that list. We would start thinking in the wrong categories. We'd say, oh, well, you know, Einstein. Or um, maybe if we value something more business and money-oriented, we'd say Bill Gates or Elon Musk or somebody like that. Or if we thought, well, those are modern people, Socrates. We'd think philosophy. Most of the people would not even list Jesus on their top ten. That's an interesting thing. We don't think of Jesus as the smartest human to have ever lived, and yet, He was and is. Now, on his earthly ministry, he temporarily limited some of his omniscience. For instance, he says, no one knows the hour of the son's return except the father, not even the son. So I'm sure he's omniscient again now that he's glorified, but he limited that for a temporary season. But even then, he was full of the spirit and had direct access to God the father who had all the omniscience. And so Jesus is and was the smartest person to have ever walked this planet, hands down. All things were created through him. Now, with that in mind, ask yourself this question. Do I think I am more qualified to run my life? I often think that, 
until I mess it up, and then I relent and go, oh, all right, Lord, you know better than what I know. I want to do it my way, but your way is better. Even if it doesn't feel good at the time or make sense at the time, Lord, I need to trust you. You're smarter than I am. You know actually what is better for me. I've got to come back to your way. Now, today, we're in week two, as I mentioned, of the study of Mark, and we're considering the kingdom of God. So if you want to look in the Bible, it's on page 836 in a pew Bible, Mark chapter 1. And while you get there, let me remind you that last week, I defined the gospel in terms of just the first section, the first 13 verses, because it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in that sermon, I mentioned that it's good news, the gospel, is that Jesus identifies with sinful humanity in his baptism, that he brings forgiveness by dying on the cross, that he transforms our hearts by a baptism of the Holy Spirit on the inside, and that he's with us forever. All of that is part of the gospel. But we get a little more information now when we get to verses 14 and 15. Because in verse 14 it says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So now he's proclaiming it. And what does he say? This is a really important thing. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the proclamation of the gospel. It's now time for the kingdom to be here. God's kingdom is for now. And the kingdom, to put a simple definition on it, would be wherever the king's rule operates, or more simply, where he gets what he wants. The kingdom is wherever the king gets what he wants. And I say it that way because for a season... Our great high king has allowed people to rebel against him. And so he doesn't get what he wants everywhere because he is still honoring people's choice to reject him. So much of this world is not in his kingdom. And when it says the kingdom of God is at hand, the ESV footnote will tell you it can also be translated has come near. But don't think near like a a nearby miss or a passing by or a comet shooting past. Think near like upon you. It is right there where you are. The kingdom of God is right here. It's upon you. Now go back to the benevolent dictator again for a second. If he is going to actually rule with all power, other rival authorities are going to have to be removed. So right away we're going to see conflict. So if the proclamation of the gospel is the kingdom of God is at hand right now, the time has come, the time is fulfilled, There is a world that is under a rival leader, and you're going to see conflict. So what does the first uh, section of Mark's gospel deal with? A whole lot of power confrontations. Look in in verse um, 21. He goes into Capernaum, which is kind of his home base around Galilee on the northern shore of the sea. It's a small town. Peter's mother-in-law lived there. He kind of was there in and out of that town often. And he goes into the synagogue, and two things right away become apparent. One, Everyone is amazed at his teaching because he has direct authority from heaven. The rabbis of the day did, frankly, what I would do. I go read the best commentators that are out there. I read the scholars. I dig into all the tools I have on my computer, and I'll quote people that I respect to you. Rabbi so-and-so says this, and then Rabbi so-and-so says this. That's how the teaching of the day was back then. Jesus didn't refer to any rabbi. He came out and he said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And he explained it, and he taught with such authority. Right away, all the people went, what is this new teaching? He has so much authority. And there was a man in the synagogue who had a demon, a fallen angel, uh, an unclean spirit in him. And right away, he cries out. 
I know who you are. Have you come to destroy us? Apparently there is either more than one in that man or he's referring kind of collectively to all of, all of the demons in the world. Have you come to destroy us? You know, that passage that we read, that Emily read from Daniel's prophecy, talks about these, these um, beasts, it uses that term, these demons being stripped of their dominion. And so they know the word of God. They know what it says in there. Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. You're the holy one. They're expecting Christ to come and strip away their dominion and their authority. And what do they do? They immediately submit to his power. And he says, get out of him and be quiet. And convulsing the man and with a shriek, that's all he's got left is a shriek and then he's gone and upset that he's lost his host. We see a conflict here and we see a clash of kingdoms. So right away, when the kingdom of God comes, it's going to liberate people, but it's going to cast out rival authority, and Jesus is going to be established as the king of kings. So the gospel is not just about sin and hell, although those are part of the message for sure. But we tend to truncate it down to, I need to confess my sins, and I, am, I want to be part of heaven, and I don't want to end up in hell, and we tend to over, way oversimplify it. And that's really, if you read through the Gospels, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the availability of God's kingdom right now for you and I to participate in it and be part of it. So his kingdom is for now. I like how the ESV heading puts it, um, right above uh, verse 16. Now, this is not, you know, inerrant scripture. This is the ESV translators giving us a, a paragraph heading. Jesus calls the first disciples. I like actually that it says first disciples because what it implies is there will be second and third and many disciples, including you and I. So it wasn't a once-off way of calling. Jesus didn't just call 12 men to be his disciples. He is still in the process of calling people to be his disciples. And so that is one of the things that Mark is saying to us. Are you his disciple? He's inviting you to come follow from him and to learn. Now, verse 16 tells us how to join and then what to expect. This is really helpful. Very simple. I, I use this as a model when I think through discipleship. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's uh, verse 17. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So if you were to take those three things, those parts, follow me, I will make you, and fishers of men, that gives us a pretty good look at what it, how to come into the kingdom and what to expect as a person of the kingdom of God. So first of all, follow me. Now, Jesus set himself up as a rabbi. He, would have, he was called rabbi. He acted and dressed like the rabbis of his day, although he didn't say the same things, and he did some things that upset the other rabbis. But basically, he came and he said, follow me, and I will be your rabbi. And in those days, you didn't just like get a syllabus for a bunch of classes and go to school and write some papers and then get a grade. No, to be educated under a rabbi was to literally walk with him wherever he went, to sleep in the same places he slept, to eat what he ate, to, to live the life that he was living and, and ask questions along the way. Why this, rabbi? Why do you do it this way? What does this mean? Teach us this. So Jesus to this day is still saying, come learn from me. Come follow. I, I will teach you. I'll show you. Be my apprentice. Be my student. That's literally what it means to be a disciple. So he is inviting us to follow. He's not forcing, he's inviting. And the second he says, I will make you. I will make you become. And I stop right there because a big part of being a disciple is about that inner transformation that's needed. Last week, 
I mentioned that he, John said, John the Baptist said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One of the other gospels says, and with fire. The Holy Spirit will come and begin to transform from the inside out. If you invite God into your life, I think the saying is true, he loves you and accepts you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. He is going to bring you along in character. He's going to transform you. It's going to require a change. And that means some correction, some discipline, and it's not always pleasant. It's hard. So I'll be forthright about that. You will experience conflict, both personal conflict in, in your own life, and you'll experience conflict with those that don't want him to be their king because now you've joined a different team, and there are two teams. You're either on his side or you're not, and if you're on his side, those who are not are not happy with you, and so there's conflict involved in this. But when we say, you're my rabbi, I want to follow you, he says, okay, I'm going to start transforming you. I will make you. He's making us into his own likeness. And then specifically, he says, I will make you fishers of men, or you could say fishers of mankind. The Greek word there, it picks up both, both genders. It's not male or female. It's humankind would be maybe a better way to say it. I will make you fishers of people. How about that? That means that we have to embrace Jesus's mission. That opening song, uh, Reckless, it's taken from Luke chapter 15, um, where the word prodigal, we think of the prodigal son that goes and squanders stuff, but it's actually prodigal, meaning recklessly generous. And it speaks of the father in that parable who's recklessly generous with his love and his possessions and his very life to both the younger and the older son. And God has this kind of reckless love for us that he will go to great lengths to win us, to pursue us. He is a God on mission. He's been called the hound of heaven because he leaves and goes after. He leaves the 99 in the flock and goes after the one that is lost. That is you. He's been chasing you your entire life. He pursues you. He goes after us. He's the God who comes down. And so right away, anyone that's going to join his kingdom is going to be enlisted, conscripted, if you will, into his mission. And he could, by force, just sheer authority and power, make everyone worship him. But he wants to win hearts one at a time. And the way he does it right now is through his people, as his witnesses. So as he's at work in your life, he expects you to go and share good news with others. He'll commission, at the end of all four of the Gospels, we'll see a commissioning. As the Father sent me, Jesus says, so I'm sending you. He sends us out into this world to be part of his mission. And his plan is to use us. Now, eventually, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. When he returns, there will be no rivals left. He will come in that authority. But in the meantime, he's offering a choice. He's inviting people to choose to serve and worship him and to come in. Now, verse 15 tells us what to do. Verse 15, that's the beginning where he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So repentance isn't just about sin. Repentance is about changing your mind about rival kingdoms and authorities, and we all have them. It means we have to change teams. We have to leave the worldly system and come into the kingdom system. We have to say, I'm not the Lord of my life. You are God. And there are places in each one of our lives where we keep taking dominion back. I like the saying that the problem with living sacrifices, like Paul says in Romans 12, we are living sacrifices, is they can crawl off the altar. 
right? We can keep taking back. We, I give you my life. No, I take it back. And that is, that's what we, do. that's the Romans 7 thing. That's what we're constantly dealing with. And so the repentance is the changing of mind. That's why I invited you to consider the kingdom as we worship this morning. Consider its goodness. Consider its invitation. Consider remembering who you are in Christ so that any rival authorities or kingdoms or as my friend Alan calls them, thiefdoms. I've got my little thiefdom over here. I'm stealing authority from God to make my own little, little tiny kingdom. Any of those things that creep up in our life need to be repented of and give, given back. God, I'm sorry. I took control of that part of my life back from you. I want to give it back into your reins. You, you lead me there. That's the repentance. And then believe in the gospel. And we think belief is up here. We think it's between the ears. It's intellectual assent. But the, the word faith and the word faithfulness, there's no distinction in the Greek. Faith, faithfulness, belief is what you're doing right now. You sat down on that pew fully trusting, believing that it could sustain your weight. Nobody thought, I'm going to crash to the floor through this wooden seat or pew. That's what belief means. It means to put your weight on, to trust in, to entrust your life to. So repent and believe in the gospel. Trust in it. Put your weight on it. Be willing to do what it says even when you don't like it or understand it. Because remember, you're serving the smartest person that's ever lived. Jesus has this. He knows what he's doing. So when we think about rival authorities in our life, here are some convicting questions that all of us need to ask. What do I do with my time? What do I do with my money? What do I do with my thoughts? Maybe thoughts would be even a, a harder one to consider. What have you thought about in the last seven days? What has preoccupied your mind? Did you have thoughts of God? Did you begin your day talking to him? Are you reading his word? Or are you just, you know, first thing I do is I turn on the news. I watch the weather. I think about what's going on in the world. Government. I mean, this sounded like it was going to be a political sermon, right, when I started. It's not. But some of us, that's where we go. We go right to what's going on. What, did, what happened this week? What happened last night? Or where are the markets? Our minds can be occupied with all sorts of things other than the things of God. That would be a helpful tool to think through. What would happen if 500 people, our basic, our core church, were all 100% in and excited about the kingdom and praying for the kingdom to come? What could happen, really? I mean, throughout church history, major revivals have occurred when entire groups of people became focused on the kingdom and started praying for the kingdom to come. What would that look like in our city? How might that transform society? We all have some adjusting to do, all of us, to realign with the kingdom. And some of us have never actually trusted Jesus, and we need to talk to him about that and invite him to be our Lord. And maybe you need to take some time to really weigh, is he trustworthy? Why would I think he's trustworthy? That's what this Mark study is about, getting a close look at who Jesus was and is and whether or not I'm going to be on his side or not. And I, I don't want you to wait long. I want you to come now, today, even in this moment. And so I'm, I'm going to pray and invite both groups, whether you're in the group of the Christian who needs some adjustment or the person who's still wondering if he's willing or she's willing to be a Christian. As I see it, there are only really two categories in this room, and I'm going to pray for both of those now. So I invite you to bow your heads and join with me. Lord, this is good news that you have come and brought your kingdom and with it your power and your presence and your authority and Lord, your goodness. You are so full of love for us that we don't deserve but we so desperately need. 
And Lord, for anyone in here who has never trusted you, I pray for the gift of faith right now. I pray that they would come to you and talk to you and invite you into their heart. I thank you, Lord, for what that means. We certainly don't have everything figured out, but we can have faith seeking understanding. And so would you give that faith, please? And for those of us who have known you and are Christians, Lord, help us to recognize where we've taken back some of your kingdom and and are doing it the wrong way, doing it our own way. I pray that you would give us the courage to trust you with those things. Lord, help us not ask you to bless what we're doing, but to join into what you've already blessed. And I thank you, Lord, and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.